traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. peek behind the curtain of the Twilight Zone podcast. When I'm preparing for an episode of the show and planning out what I'm going to say to you, I go about it in a particular way. I see what facts are out there about the episode in books and so on on the internet. I choose pieces of dialogue in the episode that are either interesting or important to the plot. I choose moments that I have something to say about, things that resonate with me, lines of dialogue. I try to present enough of the plot that even if you, the listener, hasn't seen the episode of The Twilight Zone in a while, there's enough there to refresh your memory so you don't necessarily have to go back and watch the episode to get what I'm talking about. I also use clips to break up my dialogue so It's not just me talking constantly for 20 or 30 minutes. The situation that I find myself in sometimes is if there's not much in the way of trivia or there's not much substance to a show, sometimes it can seem like I'm just narrating the episode. And I try not to do that as much as possible, but it's really down to what material there is to work with. So for the most part, I think it seems to work. But then comes along an episode with next to no dialogue. Thankfully, there are some interesting facts along the way with this one. So let's go to that remote cabin and meet the invaders. This is one of the out of the way places, the unvisited places, bleak, wasted, dying. This is a farmhouse. Handmade, crude, a house without electricity or gas, a house untouched by progress. This is the woman who lives in the house, a woman who's been alone for many years, a strong, simple woman whose only problem up until this moment has been that of acquiring enough food to eat, a woman about to face terror, which is, even now, coming at her from the Twilight Zone. first broadcast on the 27th of January 1961, written by Richard Matheson and directed by Douglas Hayes. We're now on episode 15 of season 2 of The Twilight Zone, and the last time we had a Richard Matheson episode was episode 7 of season 2, with Nick of Time, an episode that I really like. But there's still plenty of Richard Matheson to come with another 9 episodes after this one, Over the last few episodes, we have seen that ideas for one thing sometimes end up as another thing in the Twilight Zone, and this one is no exception. The origins of this one seem to be in a story from a teleplay that Richard Matheson wrote called Devil Doll. And he said, 
I'd originally submitted the story, or at least a similar premise, to the Twilight Zone, and they rejected it because they thought it was too grim. So I turned it around into a science fiction story, and it became The Invaders, the episode that Agnes Moorhead was in. Because it was the same damn story, except here there's only one doll. Later on, I wrote the premise as the short story called Prey, and Playboy bought it. But Playboy wasn't the final place of that story, it was actually adapted by Richard Matheson himself in a TV movie called Trilogy of Terror in 1975, and it starred Karen Black, who was terrorised in her apartment by a fetish doll possessed by the spirit of a Zuni warrior. Now Rod Serling in 1960 received a letter from a fan asking for more out there episodes, out of space episodes, that kind of thing. And Rod Serling wrote back, next season I'll see what I can do about dimensional stories and space travel. My sponsors being rather uniquely square gentlemen have taken a somewhat dim view of science fiction. Next season, however, we hope to slip a few by them. Our director on The Invaders is Douglas Hayes, and this is his final Twilight Zone, which is rather strange because he did quite a few of them, but it, it feels kind of strange that he stopped in season two, and I'm not quite sure why he did. So I guess it's only fitting that we stop for a moment and pay tribute to a director who I think really left his mark on The Twilight Zone in a very positive way. So let's look at the list we have and when the sky was opened. We have Elegy, The Chaser, The After Hours, Nervous Man in a Four Dollar Room, The Howling Man, Eye of the Beholder, Dust, and now The Invaders. I guess from that list maybe The Chaser is the low point, but there are several really high points too. What really stands out to me about Hayes are two things. He never would back down from the technical challenges with things like the still people in Elegy, the devil transformation in The Howling Man, the mirror sequences in Nervous Man in a $4 room to name just a few. He was very inventive coming up with all this stuff and of course I'm sure that was in collaboration with others but he definitely left his mark in that way. And I think he was also a master of mood. The oncoming sense of panic in And When the Sky Was Opened when there was no visible or tangible threat. The chilling use of the mannequins in the after hours. And maybe his greatest achievement in the Twilight Zone, Eye of the Beholder, which you could say is the most atmospheric Twilight Zone of all time. What constitutes a classic episode of the Twilight Zone? One of the ones that really does stand out is, of course, up to all of us to decide for ourselves. But of these nine episodes, I think we have at least five that I would say reach those heights. So Douglas Hayes, for your contribution to the Twilight Zone, we salute you. In the episode where we talked about Dust, I read out a part of an interview where he said he liked to introduce Rod Serling's opening narration 
in interesting ways. I suppose he was a little bit limited to what he could do this time round because it's just a one-person show. So he has Rod Sailing just walking into shot as our main character, the woman, prepares some food. Now I don't tend to refer to IMDB comments that much on the show, but I have read one where someone lists it as a goof that Sailing shows up and he's the same size as the woman because obviously the twist of the show. I don't really see it that way because of how I view Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone, but at the same time, considering the real quirk of the episode is that it's really a one-woman show, I think there might have been a case for Rod Sailing to deliver his narration off-screen this time round. Quite divided on that one. I don't think it spoils anything that he's actually there, but if you really want that sense of solitude, then maybe this one should have been him doing it off camera. So our main character, credited only as woman, lives in a remote shack. There's nothing around. The land is barren and she wears a simple dress. There's no trace of style or vanity in the way she carries herself. She just wears a simple dress to cover herself up. She's preparing food and notices that her knife is becoming dull. We can see here how Agnes Moorhead is approaching the role and I think it's quite interesting. She's playing it almost like an animal at times, working on instinct. Her clothes, like I said, show no trace of vanity and neither does she. What use is vanity if there is nobody else around? When she eats, the food hangs from her mouth and she moves without thought to composure. In trying to appear so lacking in anything approaching composure, there are times when maybe she overplays it slightly, but she's carrying this whole thing on her own and I like what she's trying to do with it. Now I mentioned this in the last episode, but Douglas Hayes said, the reason we cast Aggie for the part in The Invaders was because she had done a very famous radio show called Sorry Wrong Number, in which she talks constantly, a tawdry force of one woman talking, one voice, nobody else. When this part on the invaders came up and the woman was not going to talk at all, there was no dialogue for her, I said, this will be the opposite side of the coin, let's get Aggie Moorhead. It turned out she had been a student of the mime, Marcel Marceau. She chose to play the part like an animal under attack. Her performance built beautifully and got more and more animalistic as she was being attacked. She made sounds when angry and whimpered when hurt, but she never uttered a word. So she needs to bring a certain physicality to it because she needs to be interesting to watch. She needs to carry this whole thing. And I think she does. And as she potters around in her kitchen, she suddenly hears a noise. So after she hears the noise, she starts looking out of the window of her cabin to see what made it. So considering what the twist was going to be, there had to be certain considerations about what the cabin would be. And Douglas Hayes said, So we used just the basic things. A curtain was just basically a curtain. A chair was just the shape of a chair. 
There was no style that could be attributed to any particular period of history or place. Yet basically it came down to what would be on a farm in the most primitive type of communities. So the woman climbs onto the roof of her cabin through a hatch to find out what that noise is. And it's there that she sees a round silver object that we recognize as a flying saucer. But to her, from the reaction, we can see she has no idea what it is. And it's here that I think Agnes Moorhead really starts to come into her own. The way she is starting to let that fear creep into her performance. Imagine being confronted by something that you've never seen before. And not only have you never seen it, but you don't know what it is. We don't know who she is or where other people are. But if we saw that today, we might think, oh, look, it's a flying saucer. And that would, of course, be strange to us. But for her, it's likely that she has no frame of reference for what this thing is. And I think Agnes Moorhead really starts to sell that here. Now, something else we might say if we saw this particular flying saucer is, look, it's the C-57D from Forbidden Planet, which it is. So that tradition of using props from Forbidden Planet in the Twilight Zone is alive and well with the invaders. So they used this ship because it was there, I imagine, and as luck would have it, the size of the prop suits what it needs to be within the episode. But what I like about it too is we get a real nice close-up look of the prop when the woman kneels down next to it. Let's face it, this ship is from one of the most famous science fiction movies of all time, so it's nice to really take a moment to have it there and, and be able to have a look up close at it. So the little ramp comes down from the ship and we see our first glimpse of one of the invaders. And then he fires a little gun at the woman. So let's talk about these little guys. In the Twilight Zone companion, Douglas Hayes said to Mark Zickery, I didn't want to do this with process photography or with tricks, a la Dr. Cyclops or something. By having them that size, she was able to grab them physically and held them across the room, which made it far more interesting than if you were using process and she couldn't really touch them. He goes on to say these characters were then made, oddly enough, by the makeup department. They modelled them from my drawing, which was sort of based on the Mitchell and Tyreman. The reason I made them this kind of bulky round shape is that first of all, they should not look like human beings, but secondly, after the fact, you had to say they were human beings. Then therefore, they were in inflated spacesuits, right? So the little spacemen were actually made from foam rubber and painted gold and given a metallic sheen. And Douglas Hayes himself, using a black sleeve, would put his hand into the back of the puppet and operate them. So if he had to use the arms, he would put his fingers in the arms. If he had to use the legs, he would put his fingers in the legs. So that's how they were made, but do they work in the episode? When you look at the general opinion of this one, this seems to be a sticking point for some people, how the aliens look. We'll talk about how that impacts the twist later on, but 
in themselves some think that they've got this great location great actress good atmosphere and then this little doll walks in they had to make a choice did they do some sort of effects type shots using actual people or use these little puppets i think to a degree they were damned whatever they did on this one if you remember the tv show land of the giants that was made almost a decade after this that could look incredibly hokey too they used giant props and that sort of thing to make the actors appear small in comparison to the giants and various types of effects to have the small people interact with the giants were used one person who wasn't particularly enamored with the dolls was the writer richard matheson and he said to mark zickery in the twilight zone companion i never liked it i don't like it today for one thing i think it's incredibly slow moving my script had twice as much incident as they used in the final version it moved like a shot the teaser alone of the woman cutting vegetables and then hearing the noise it seems like it takes her forever to get up on the roof also i thought those roly-poly dolls were ridiculous looking the way i had written it you would only catch very quick views of them and never anything clear to see these things waddling across the floor was about as frightening as peter rabbit coming at you so richard matheson didn't like the dolls and he says that he wrote it where you barely see them and i do kind of like the sound of that maybe i do wish they'd done it that way it would really be great in that location with that mood at the same time but i think i've made my peace with what we do get with these little guys strange looking as they are they have became iconic so here begins the woman's ordeal she is absolutely bewildered and confused by what's going on and we can see small bumps on her arms where the ray guns of the tiny creatures have hit her after the initial encounter with the aliens we have this scene where the woman lights a candle and goes looking for the creatures which presented its own challenges now director of photography george clemens said to truly make it look right you have to visualize where your shadows change lights in that particular picture i had to take over a couple of dimmers myself being able to know just what i wanted and the time to make the moves but i think i had about six dimmer boys six lights and all that had to be synchronized one source would come up and another would go out as she went from room to room i was very happy with the result i was able to achieve because it looked real to me after i finally got it so it just goes to show what went into this seemingly simple episode of just one woman in a cabin with these little puppets now i won't recount every beat of the story because it is pretty much this cat and mouse between the woman and the invaders so i'm not just going to recount her movements within the cabin but douglas hayes says that it was quite an easy shoot for him he said by being able to incorporate my little guys in with her and so forth i was able to keep it down to a minimum of cuts i would rehearse for about half a day with her and with the camera for one piece of film and then we would do it it would take like four hours of rehearsal and then four minutes to shoot it 
then another long, long period of rehearsing, and then a short piece of film. And when the seven or eight pieces of film were put together, we had our half-hour show. I think one of the things that made it easy for Hayes was that he was, of course, working with a consummate professional in Agnes Moorhead. So she would be 60 years old at this point, having been born in 1900, and she was involved with the arts from an early age as a dancer and a singer. She went to Paris to study pantomime with Marcel Marceau. She studied at the American Academy for Dramatic Arts in 1928 and graduated with honours. And around this time, she was supplementing her income by working in radio. And it's here that she pretty much started her acting career and was part of Orson Welles' Mercury Theatre on Air and was part of that famous War of the Worlds broadcast in 1938. So it wasn't until she was 41 years old that she actually first hit the silver screen in the Orson Welles classic, Citizen Kane, where she played the title character's mother. She was primarily in films until the mid-50s when she started to play more and more on television. So it's quite interesting how her career developed. Nowadays, unfortunately, women in the business will tell you that doors start to close for them the older they get. But it was when she was getting older that Agnes Moorhead started to work on screen. So she seemed to do things her way, quite a strong woman, and she was the first woman to host the Academy Awards in 1948. Of interest is that she was one of the cast members of the ill-fated film The Conqueror, which was filmed in 1954 in the Nevada desert, close by to where the government was doing nuclear testing. In later years, those tests were suspected to have caused cancer deaths of several of the film's stars, including John Wayne, Dick Powell, Susan Hayward, and sadly, Agnes Moorhead also died from cancer as well. So I've said before, I think she does really good work in this episode, and you can tell that this is a professional we're dealing with here. You know, some might watch it and think her vocalisations are a bit over the top and the way she acts sometimes, but I don't think they are when you consider who she is. Let's not forget, she isn't human, she's an alien. We don't know what her language is like, or even if she has one, in the same way that we have one. For all we know, these vocalisations are pretty much what her language is. So it's not a cheat, and I really enjoy what Agnes Moorhead brings to the role. Now there's a moment here where one of the spacemen, the invaders, comes up through the floorboards with a knife and either stabs the woman in the foot or cuts her on the leg. Again, it does kind of pull me out of things a little because... To jump ahead to the twist, it's supposed to be a human being in that suit, but he moves and clutches the knife like a glove puppet holding a wand or something. So I guess how much people do or don't like the episode may hinge on whether they can just accept these things for what they are. So is it something we can get over? I think so, because the episode is considered a classic these days. You know, I read people's criticisms of films online sometimes, 
and someone will criticize a film in some detail and I might say okay I see what you're saying but is that one thing enough to write off the movie can you not just accept that one thing whatever it is and enjoy the rest of the movie I suppose it depends on what that one thing is and how big of an impact it makes on the whole film or TV show. But in the case of The Invaders, I think that it gets so much right that any minor grumbles I have about The Invaders themselves, it's not a deal breaker. Especially in great moments like when the woman goes to grab a piece of wood that comes through one of the doors in her house. When she goes to grab it, one of the spacemen puts a knife through it so she cuts her hand. A little improbable because when you see what's on the other side of the door, that little tubby spaceman would have had to climb up the door with a knife, put it through the hole and then make off pretty quickly. So it is improbable, but again, it's not a deal breaker because I think the episode is really starting to build up a good tense atmosphere at this point and it doesn't pull its punches. At one point the woman even traps one of the invaders in a box and burns him to death on a fire. And in the end, she smashes that alien ship to pieces with an axe. Thankfully not the Forbidden Planet prop this time round, if you are to believe the Twilight Zone companion, because they say that it's actually a rougher version of that prop that they used. But it's now that we get our twist. And that voice is provided by the director, Douglas Hayes. So he not only controlled them, he gave those little guys voice as well. So the little people aren't really little people, depending on your perspective. It's actually the woman who is the giant and the invaders are Americans from Earth. It's a twist that we've seen before in the Twilight Zone. In a, in a different way in the episode Third from the Sun, so it's not completely original. And I can't remember if it surfaces again in the Twilight Zone, but I've certainly read other short stories since that use that twist, so maybe it is a bit overused now. But I guess if you can pull it off, there's nothing wrong with using it. And even though it's been used in the Twilight Zone before, this uses it in such a different way that I think it certainly justifies its existence. Now there are a couple of quotes from Richard Matheson about the invaders. Now I read one from the Twilight Zone companion earlier on where he said that he didn't like it, but then in unlocking the door to a television classic, Martin Grams Jr. offers up this alternative. 
he documents an interview with Matheson where he says, I thought Richard Donner did an excellent job on Nightmare at 20,000 feet and Douglas Hayes who did the Agnes Moorhead one, The Invaders. What's there is good because I have said many times that I would have liked it if The Invaders had gone faster. In that and the Buster Keaton thing once upon a time, I had a lot more material, more going on between her and these little critters because the opening I find to this day unbearably leisurely, it just takes forever. It takes forever before she hears the noise on the roof and it takes forever for her to get up there. I think the opening probably could have been cut in half by a third. And I didn't like the little spacemen, those little roly-poly things. I had them appearing so just flying past your eye or your attention. They had little space things that made them fly and you would just see them and then they'd be gone. They weren't just wobbling around. Now in the September 1981 issue of the Twilight Zone magazine, in an interview Matheson says, Looking back through the years, I'm more pleased. I'm so hard to satisfy, however, at the time, I was almost never completely happy. For example, I wasn't completely happy with the way The Invaders was filmed. Agnes Moorhead was wonderful, but the direction just dragged its feet. My version had many things going on that really kept the story going. Much more involvement and incident. I also didn't want the viewers to catch more than a brief glimpse of the creatures until a very extended point in the story. I envisioned the creatures as really menacing. Once you saw them, those little figures wobbling around looked like wind-up dolls that you'd find on a street corner or in a cartoon. Even so though, I wasn't too unhappy with the show. So perhaps his opinion of it softened over the years. I don't personally feel that it's slow, but he's Richard Matheson and he wrote it, so, you know, of course he knows best. But I think the pacing is just right, and like I said earlier, Agnes Moorhead gives the only performance that could have worked in this episode, a performance that you can't help but watch. She needs to do all of the heavy lifting here, and she does it admirably, but let's not forget that Douglas Hayes, the master of mood, directed it and he ends his Twilight Zone run on a high note. And then we have Jerry Goldsmith providing a great score backing it all up. It has all of the hallmarks of a great, slow-burning horror movie. And while I can see what Richard Matheson was saying when he said that the invaders should have been these quick little things that you don't see, let's not forget that we do only see brief glimpses of them for a few seconds at a time. So I would put The Invaders up there as a classic Twilight Zone. Even in an anthology show whose stock in trade is unusual stories, it distinguishes itself as being quite unique. And I'm not sure if it's something that happens as much now, but certainly in the days of things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you would sometimes get these episodes like Hush, where the cast was silent for the most part, or once more with Feeling, which was a musical. Episodes that deviated from the norm. Perhaps a little gimmicky sometimes, but that's okay. And I think we're seeing the seeds of that kind of thing with the invaders. Now, if you recall, I mentioned in the episode where we looked at Dust in all its incarnations, the Twilight Zone radio series. I enjoy it a lot, but there's not much point in bringing it up every episode, because most if not all of the original series, 
has its radio counterpart, which is more or less the same as the TV version, with some changes here and there. So I think you know where I'm going here. How do you adapt to radio an episode of television without any dialogue, which features only one person? Well, they tackle that in quite an interesting way. It's standing on this ladder. I gotta climb up on the roof. No! It's all right. That thing is just sitting there. Oh! What? What is it? If it's a bomb, it's huge, Will. What does it look like? It's round and flat. Only part that isn't flat is a big bump smack in the middle of it. I think it's made of metal. Let me touch it and see. No, no, don't touch it. It's okay, Will. It's not doing anything. I don't care. It could still be dangerous. I'll just touch it with my foot. Here, let me just get a little closer. Yep, it's definitely some kind of metal. Get back down here! Wait, wait. I think it's coming from underneath this thing. I gotta bend down to look. Martha, what's going on? It's some kind of door. It's lowering down from the underside of this thing in the jig. What's happening? Nothing. The door came down, but now it's just. So it's not just one person on their own, they have a man in the show with the woman and it gives the woman someone to speak to and by having the man be blind it still creates some level of isolation for her because he's only recently lost his sight and he hasn't adapted to it yet so he's still not used to doing the day to day things never mind catching tiny aliens. But it does unavoidably change the mood of the thing because the original was all about a story being told in silence. And if you think of that aspect of the woman being an alien, there's so many things that they don't do with her to give away uh, that she isn't actually human, like words, that sort of thing. This couple have very human names. They speak with, you know, American accents, so... You know, there are certain things that maybe don't translate as well, but what else could they do? You know, it does work in its own right. And I won't spoil the ending, but it's one of those Twilight Zone radio episodes where they do do things a little bit differently. Now, before we leave the invaders, one thing that I've always wondered about the Twilight Zone is when another writer wrote an episode, a writer that wasn't Rod Serling, would they write Rod Serling's narration and that Twilight Zone magazine interview with Richard Matheson answers this. The interviewer asks Richard Matheson, did you find it difficult to adapt your stories into the Twilight Zone's television format? 
and he says no I never had that kind of trouble there was always fertile ground there for any kind of idea that I might have the only thing Rod ever had to correct me on was that at the start of my involvement with the show I didn't know that I was supposed to write his narrations I thought that he did all those himself so there we go that answers that question and in his original script for the invaders Richard Matheson's closing narration was a little bit different and it went like this this is one of the out of the way places until now one of the unvisited places in our solar system the planet Mars bleak wasted dying but not quite dead yet these are the invaders the tiny beings from the tiny place called Earth who would take the giant step across the sky to the question marks that sparkle and beckon from the vastness of a universe only to be imagined. The invaders, who found out that a one-way ticket to the stars beyond has the ultimate price tag. And we have just seen it entered in a ledger that covers all the transactions of the universe. A bill stamp paid in full and to be found on file in the twilight zone. So there we go. How do you do a podcast about a show with no dialogue? I guess you just put a few of the sound effects in instead. But thankfully, I'm not alone this time round and adding some voice to the Twilight Zone. So let's listen to a little bit of feedback in submitted for your approval. I had an email from Tyler Evans and he added a bit of commentary about his thoughts about back there and he says Tom I just wanted to let you know I'm a big fan of the podcast and really glad that you are putting out great episodes thank you Tyler take your time because I really enjoy the quality of each Twilight Zone episode you discuss and I know this isn't something you can just throw together in a couple of hours if you want it done right I wanted to give you some of my thoughts on the episode back there. First off, let me say that I really enjoyed the old-time radio shows with different twists on time travel and possibly preventing the Lincoln assassination. I love old-time radio too, so this was fun to listen to. You know, I really enjoy them as well. I think it's quite a, a golden time and quite magical. And Tyler goes on to say, Now on to the Twilight Zone episode back there. I've watched this show multiple times on previous marathons in syndication on television and remembered enjoying it. I think it is because I, like most Americans, have such a high regard and interest in President Lincoln for what he did to bring our country and our people back together. And the fact that he was never alive in my lifetime, he is almost a mythical or legendary status even though you know he was a real person so any story surrounding his death would be both interesting and memorable. With that being said, I watched the show again after your last podcast, and here are some of my thoughts. Even though I didn't go into the episode ready for a cynical or critical analysis, I found it not to be as intriguing an episode as I remembered. The fact that Corrigan just randomly gets headache symptoms and is suddenly taken back in time with no time machine or other explanation is odd to me. 
I mean just because they were having a discussion about time travel in the club, the universe transports him back. I understand this may be due to the fact that they only have a 30 minute time slot and obviously budget issues were present in the second season given that some of the episodes had to be shot on tape. Just to uh, interrupt a moment, I think that book adaption tackles this uh, aspect of it a little bit better. It sort of introduces an element of mystique about the club itself as this sort of uh, timeless place where, you know, odd things can happen. Not in so many words, but it's it's quite cleverly written in that respect that it's almost like a fixed point in time. But um, But yeah, I can see your point on that one. And he goes on to say, also Corrigan was arguing at the club that the past cannot be changed and yet he was the one trying to prevent Lincoln's assassination. It would have played better to his character if he believed that the past could be altered. Even though I enjoyed Russell Williams' performance in execution and I believe he does have a charismatic screen presence, I found his performance as Corrigan very over the top. You know, you're right. I think in the episode I said a little bit over the top, but you're right, it's very over the top. I, I believe some may be in part to Sailing's dialogue, like the immediate repeating of Ford's theatre and just the name of the play and the dates just to drive home to the audience that these are important times and places in history. And to be honest, the line, this is April 14th, 1865, as he walks out of the boarding house is downright cringeworthy. It's also extremely hard to watch him in his post-drug state crawling around that fireplace and the other furniture in Booth's room. No, you're right about that one. Um, I do believe the actor playing Wellington Stroke Booth did a great job because he was over the top as well. But looking into Booth's background, he was an actor, obviously, and very educated and polished. And the actor really resembles any picture I've ever seen of Booth very well. He says, I did really enjoy Sailing's opening narration in the club since he was actually in the room during the opening scene. Yeah, I agree with that. I found the transition from the light bulb to the flame lighted lamp on the steps of the club a nice transition as well. Overall, the episode is still enjoyable to watch because it has a true historic springboard, but obviously there are flaws. But it's still a show I would watch again. Thanks again for all your efforts. For the podcast Tom and best wishes Tyler you know I completely agree it's one of those episodes that I remember quite fondly from when I was young but when you watch it a bit older you know it, it doesn't hold up in a lot of ways but I kind of feel like it has this very ripping yarn kind of uh, feel to it you know especially since it's set in a gentleman's club with all these old duffers sitting around you know, discussing things in a very self-important manner, and then, you know, have one of them has this adventure. So that's kind of what I enjoy about it. So thank you, Tyler. I appreciate your uh, your input on the show. Now I had another email from Mike Kalaski, and he says, "Hello, this is a long overdue. Thank you for your wonderful Twilight Zone podcast, which I have been enjoying. I first saw Twilight Zone in its initial run." back in the 1960s when I was 5 to 10 years old. A perfect age to be exposed to its ideas. I've just finished listening to your comments on back there and would like to offer some of my own on that episode which I have always loved. Perhaps I'm reading more into the episode than Sailing intended, but what always struck me about it is the subtle commentary on the lower class versus the upper class, the servant 
versus the wealthy club members. Since the episode concerns Abraham Lincoln, shall I say the slave versus the masters? Rod Sailing's stories always championed the little guy over the big shot, and I think this episode demonstrates his view that the distinction between the lowly and the high and mighty is largely arbitrary. In the story, a servant becomes a master due to an historical accident concerning his ancestor. If the script had somehow permitted the servant who was transformed into the club member to have been portrayed by an African-American, the plot point would have been stunning and the episode would be remembered as a landmark in television. Now that's very interesting. I didn't think of it that way, but yeah, absolutely. Um, Mike goes on to say, perhaps if I travel back in time, I could suggest this to Sailing before he completed the script. Or would the network executives prevent my rewrite of the episode and television history? Good thought there, Mike. Um, it's always a possibility that if you know they ever get that remake series off the ground, that they always say they're going to do, that maybe this one could be revisited and, and tweaked in, in different ways, and that would be certainly a, a compelling twist on this one. Thanks a lot, Mike. I appreciate you getting in touch. Now, from time to time, I converse with a listener to the show by email called Grace, and she's offered some thoughts on the invaders. She said, This episode hinges on Agnes Moorhead's performance. As a child, I knew her as Endora on Bewitched, and years later in Citizen Kane as Charles Foster Kane's mother. I think her mime work here is spectacular. Through her performance, as well as her very minimal surroundings, you get the impression of maybe not her complete backstory, but of her isolation and primitive, simplistic life, until she is terrified by this unknown entity in her home. It's almost like a silent film in its lack of dialogue, with the exception of the invader's warning at the end. Honestly, I don't miss the dialogue here. I think the lack of speech and the clever use of sound enhances the tension and terror of the situation. Like the woman hearing the footsteps of the invader approaching. And it's perfect as well that she doesn't speak in this because she is not human or an earthling per se. There may be no language there on this other planet, and if there is, they don't give it away. It is absolutely essential to the surprise ending, and it's brilliant. A classic episode, one that is always on my New Year's Marathon watch list. Great to have you back, Tom. Best of luck with everything. I look forward to hearing new episodes in my podcast queue. Well, thank you, Grace, and thank you for your thoughts on The Invaders. Very, um, if I remember rightly, Grace is a, a younger fan of the Twilight Zone. I don't mean, you know, a child, but younger in age. And I just really like that it's, uh, you know, it's not just us old duffers who, uh, who like the Twilight Zone. Now, my friend Brandy, Brandy Jacola, I have known her for some years now. And we're just working on something for next week. But we'll, we'll come to that. And basically, she sent me a few thoughts on the invaders she said yes it's a great episode especially for one without character dialogue except at the end but there's one thing that i noticed the first time i watched it as a child and it ruined for and it ruined it for me all the time take care i might be ruining it for other people 
This woman lives in a crude handmade home with no electricity or gas and every day is a struggle to find enough to eat. So why does she have perfectly manicured fingernails? Yes, I know it's probably not as big a deal to other people, but for me, it completely breaks the reality of the character and the settings. I wish I could unsee it, but the first look is less than two minutes into the episode, and for the rest of the show, I'm just staring at her fingernails. Oh, that's unfortunate. It's a great, if somewhat melodramatic by today's standards performance from Agnes Moorhead, and the tension and the fear are portrayed very well. And it's written by one of my favorite writers of strange fiction, Richard Matheson. It's very difficult to write a teleplay that has almost no dialogue. Don't believe me? Try it. And it translates very well to the screen. And of course, I love to see the props from Forbidden Planet, in this case the United Planets Cruiser C-57D that is used as the USAF space probe number one. Thankfully, it was a facsimile of the model that was partially destroyed at the end. When I was a child watching this episode for the first time, I was somewhat distressed that what I knew to be the C-57D had been destroyed, as I was and still am a huge fan of Forbidden Planet, but back then we did not have the internet or Wikipedia to explain such things. Naturally, I know this wasn't the first use of the C-57D in the Twilight Zone, but for me it's the most memorable due to its destruction at the end of the episode. In conclusion, it's a top-notch episode, I just can't stop looking at her fingernails. Thank you Brandy, and you'll hear Brandy in the next episode of the Twilight Zone podcast very briefly, but we'll talk about that soon. And I got an email from Frank from Philadelphia, a podcaster in itself, he um, does an indie sports car podcast and another one on a show called Banshee, it's not a show that I've watched so um, but it, it's there if you if you want to check that out. And for the Invaders, he says it's in his top 10. And he says, this episode is within my top 10 favorite episodes. I can't rank 1 to 10 because they're all number ones in my book. The Invaders was brilliant. How Rod Sailing could make you on the edge of your seat without dialogue, music or electricity. The old woman said more than Sailing himself by her acting without dialogue, just emotions. I love the little light beam guns that put the black bands on here. I found that very funny, and the reveal at the end that the invaders were American aliens that landed on another planet of giant humans. Sailing proves you can tell a story and arise a list of emotions in one episode without more than five words said, all episode, and I really loved that about this episode. Tom Elliott, welcome back, sir. Well, thank you, Frank. It's, it's good to be back. So it's nice to uh, to get other people's thoughts on the Twilight Zone episodes, and I've noticed that since I've started putting episodes out again, you know, people start to respond more because it breathes life into the show, obviously. And something else it seems to have done is I've had a little flurry of iTunes reviews, which is always great, you know. iTunes works on some sort of algorithm, and I think if people are downloading the show and commenting on on the reviews and stuff like that it seems to to raise it up there somehow which is great because you know it would be really nice to get onto one of the you know the front page things where they have podcasts about tv shows and that sort of thing um so in the usa i've had a few new reviews and i always used to thank people individually for putting their reviews on there but as the schedule got a bit more crazy i lost track so there's a lot of people that i haven't thanked and you know, my apologies for that. If you've left an iTunes review over the last couple of years and I haven't, thank you. 
you know, thank you. Don't think I don't appreciate it because I really do. And I do read them all. And, um, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to do it. So I will try and pick up on that again. We have in the USA, we've got Dogboy443. And uh, don't worry, I won't hold it against you. We've got Beeman053186 and Blisnip. That's actually Frank, who we've just heard from. And John Arthur Beeman and Peachy Momo1133. They've all left new reviews. So thanks very much for that. And in the UK, we've got a review from James Rose007. So thanks, guys. I appreciate it. And if anyone else has the time to just spend a couple of minutes putting an iTunes review on there, you know, it always makes me happy uh, and I appreciate it. So, what have we got up next time on the Twilight Zone podcast? Well, the next episode is going to be something a little bit different. It's going to be a bit of a tribute to someone that we lost from the Twilight Zone this year. And I will, uh, I'll explain more about that next time round. But it's going to be a little diversion from our usual format, but that's fine. I like to take the scenic route with the Twilight Zone and see where it takes us. After that, it's going to be an episode called A Penny for Your Thoughts. So if you have any thoughts on that, then please do email me. The the episode the email address that I've been given out seems to be a bit temperamental at the moment, so if you just try using Tom at the Twilightzonenetwork.com for now, it should get to me. But um you know, if you can't, then if you go to the website, gentlemansgrindhouserecords.com, there is a there is a submissions form on there and you can, you know, also get in touch with me through that. So thanks for listening and I will see you next time in the Twilight Zone. Thank mm-hmm. you.